Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd be hit with ichthyosis vulgaris if you dried me out with the idea that you missed this week's show. Effective fundraising. That's Warren McFarland's new book. It's written for potential board members, but it's a valuable study for those on the ground doing the work. On Tony's Take Two, planned giving in the pandemic era. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. It's my pleasure to welcome Warren McFarland to the show. F. Warren McFarland is the Albert H. Gordon Professor of Business Administration Emeritus at Harvard Business School. So F. Warren McFarland is the guy I'm talking to. Albert H. Gordon is the guy who endowed the professorship. He, F. Warren McFarland, has spent the past 40 years serving on social enterprise boards, helping organizations find the right leaders, advance their missions, and raise the necessary supporting funds. I don't know anything more about Albert H. Gordon. F. Warren McFarlane is a retired, esteemed professor. He don't need a website. He don't need Twitter. Warren, welcome to the occasionally crass nonprofit radio. It's terrific to be with you this morning. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Congratulations on the book. No, thank you very much. It's been yes. And you've written it for trustees, really potential trustees, uh, but I think there are a lot of good lessons in here for uh, for folks who are doing fundraising. So that's why I, you know, because our audience isn't so much potential trustees, but it is fundraising on the ground in small and mid-sized nonprofits. So very apt subject, and I was glad to hear about your your book. You pretty much open with a chapter, it's chapter number two, on governance, governance. Why do you why do you put governance ahead of getting into the the fundraising topics in the book? Uh, I think because governance sets the context uh, for fundraising. The governance committee on the board, I think, is probably the most important of the committees, and they are the people responsible for identifying uh, the people that will serve on the board that will be able to help uh, fundraising in one way or another, either personally or helping to make connections, general context, and, and, and so forth. So that I really put it up because this, the three major roles of a nonprofit board are, number one, approving the mission and the strategy of thereof. Number two, hiring, retaining, and supporting the CEO. And thirdly, basically helping to secure the funds. And that's a hard, difficult kind of thing. My friends who head up nonprofits repeatedly say, it's 50% of their time that is spent on that. And it's just hard, difficult kind of work. And that's why I really, you know, wrote the book uh, to help focus uh, new board members' attention on how vital their role was in helping to set the context for an organization to succeed. Yeah, uh, fundraising. Yeah, so let's give a shout out to your previous book, which dealt with those three topics. But this book fleshes out the fundraising, the, the third of those exactly. three. Yeah. What's your, uh, tell folks what your, your first book was that had more focus on the first two of those uh, the, the, roles of the board. 
the first my, my first book was really aimed on governance of nonprofits, uh, what a board member needs to know. And it really looked in a very broad kind of way, you know, focusing on mission, structure, uh, budgeting, planning, and so forth. And that fundraising was one of the pieces in the book, but it was such an important piece. And I've been spending so much time working on it that I really felt there was need for an, another book to kind of take and, and blow apart was one chapter in the other book into the into this book. Yeah, because we know fundraising is at least 50% of a, an effective CEO's time spent. And you make that point in the book a couple of times. But wait, give a shout out. What's the exact title of the, the previous book? Uh-huh. Corporate Information Systems Management. I'm sorry. No, no, that that can't be. Right. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a different book for a different that's audience. That's right. No, it was wrong. <laughs> I have to I have to go back and think of it for minute. But it was basically joining a nonprofit board, which you need to know. Okay. Oh, was that it? Joining a non- okay. Because yeah. we're we're talking about effective fundraising, the trustees' role and beyond. Yeah. And uh, okay. So the and the previous one. Okay. Joining a nonprofit board, what you need to know. Exactly right. Well, I don't know why I doubted the author of the book, but I just, you, you made me a little nervous when you talk about corporate information systems. I don't know why. That's a different. That was an previous part of my life. Okay. That's a different, that's a different book. The man's prolific. You know, he gets, he's written so many books, he gets the book titles confused. That's all right. All right. Um, now, I'm not sure that many of our listeners, again, small and mid-sized shops, have a governance committee specifically. What's what's the role of that committee? They may be doing governance, maybe in their executive committee, perhaps. Again, smaller, smaller and mid-sized orgs. What's the role of the governance committee? It's the same as it's basically it's a nominating committee. It's it's its role is to attract uh, the right kinds of trustees to the organization to help talk them into doing it, to help get them uh, slotted into the right kind of role, uh, worry about uh, getting the right people, and then helping them as when they finish their term uh, to be involved in other ways. Because one of the critical things is that I view that uh, uh, the for-profit boards are very different. I've served in a number of them. They're very exciting. And when you're over, the job is over. Uh, You're gone. Yeah. For a nonprofit board, this is meant to be a lifelong relationship. And one of the organizations I'm working with right now, why we've now developed a uh, committee of some uh, 35 former board members. We have them sitting in various committees and so forth. And with that, they have stayed involved with the organization. And with it comes their philanthropy, their willingness to keep people involved. So it's just an entirely different kind of concept. And it means that you have to, that a nonprofit board is often less efficient because you have to deal with people's idiosyncrasies in a way that you don't in the for-profit world. Because I'm not, I'm not actually going to take a major donor who's a little bit garrulous and sort of, you know, cut them off uh, too, too sharply. Yeah. You make a good point about the trusteeship and the end of the trusteeship still being a, uh, Warren, are you able to silence those, um, that sounds like an email notification you're getting. Are you able to? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. It's... Okay, no, no problem. Thank you. Um, the end of the trusteeship is just a continuation in the spectrum of the 
the the lifetime relationship with the nonprofit. And I I think a lot of nonprofits make a mistake there, and they figure, okay, the, the person served three years, six years, hopefully not more than six. That's another subject, but you know they've served their time, and and now they just you know we hope they'll continue to to give, but but that's the end of sort of the uh, it's the end of the the volunteer volunteering of the relationship, and I I think that's a mistake. Your, your former board members, you know, there may be an emeritus board or some kind of an advisory board or, is, you know, that's, some other way to not lose that expertise that they gained while they were trustees. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly the key point that we call it often a board of advisors or a corporation are two things that people, you know, you know call it for. And that with it, uh, one of the jobs of the Army Committee is to help figure out what the new, as somebody comes near the end of their term, how they'll be able to be involved and get them involved in, in the right kind of way. Yeah. And, that, and that basically tremendously increases your footprint. You must have term limits because you need to continually bring new people in. But while you're bringing them in and in, why taking care of the older people is a, is a, uh, it can be, it's, you get a lot of value ideas and also philanthropy wise. Yeah. 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 Think through that, that post board member, post trusteeship relationship. It, 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 it's, I'm it's, involved it's, in four board. I'm, a, I'm involved in four nonprofit boards. Now the links to them go back over almost 40 years. And it's evolved from one setting to another, and the power you know, grows. And so that there was a annual giving, then there was you know, a capital campaign giving, and at my stage in life now, why plan giving? You know, turns out to be a you know, particularly important thing. Sure. Yeah. You say the the fundraiser is an educator of donors. Uh, that's a that's a pretty uh, basic lesson, I, but I want you to flesh it out for folks because sometimes basic lessons are, you know, they're foundational for a reason. They're worth revisiting and thinking about. Why, why do you say fundraisers are educators of donors? It's really helping somebody to understand how they can go about um, contributing in ways they haven't thought. I mean, they that I'm working with somebody right now and they're that there's some tragedy in their family and we've been able to sort of help them think through how this new facility they're building is going to help the organization and help their grief and fill their needs so that uh, it's uh, and I say it's very important that when I go out and ask people for uh, you know for money I'm not asking them for money I'm asking for them to be able to contribute, contribute to society in a way bigger than they can on their own. And it's it's really opening up an opportunity for the person, an opportunity they often haven't thought about in their in in, in their own ways. And that uh, you know, one of the things that I, and I talk about this for you know trustees is that the first thing you've got to do as an effective trustee is you've got to believe in the cause and have made your own contribution. Because when it comes right down to crunch time and I'm looking somebody in the eye and they say, Warren, what have you done for us? 
you can basically say, this is my number one or two philanthropy, and this is, and here's why I've done it. That, that there's a credibility that, that that comes out of it. And the reality is that many donors, their lives are busy, and they haven't thought through the array of alternatives they can contribute to and how they can go about extending the, their leverage. So the, the fundraiser's job is to educate, educate yes. them and educate about the work that's being done also, what those, exactly. what those programs are doing. Um, I, I presume you're a believer in 100% participation, fundraising participation on the board? Absolutely. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I'll, on the one hand, say in people given relational capacity. I was a chairman of a board of a hospital period Wait, of time. I'm sorry, you, you cut out a little bit there. People giving- I, I, was, a chairman, I was a chairman of a board no, no, of- No, wait, one, one further step back. People giving at what level? What, what did you say? I say at, at people, uh, it's not the level that you give. Oh. Your question, your, it was your, your question was, uh, do I believe in 100%? I do. Right. But I want to say as a hospital board chair, I valued the $25 I got from the homeless mother in East Cambridge as much as I did the $200,000 from the bank president because she was the eyes and ears of the community. She gave enormous value and her commitment was to the institution. So that's why I believe in the 100%. Right. And, And of course, for someone without a home, $25 is a stretch gift. So yes, all right, and so you you would you go along the philosophy that it's there's not a minimum giving level for the for the, for every board member no. that every board member gives something that's a stretch for their given their capacity is that is that how you would define it or, or what? the answer is yes but uh, and okay. the answer, <laughs> yes that's but fine. that's fair yes but is, it is on the real high end gifts. I might be willing to be their number four philanthropy. I have two or three situations I've been in where, you know, somebody has given me a sort of a go away, uh, token gift to them, which has actually helped the enterprise, uh, meet goals they didn't even know they could have. So, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that we find in, uh, in 2021 is that the shape of the giving pyramid has really, uh, become much steeper and taller. And so, therefore, the people at the top, the uh, the Jeff Bezos, his wife Mackenzie, and so forth. I mean, they they uh, mean a small gift for her is a transforming gift, you know, for the receiving your organization. So that's that's kind of the exception that I was referring to. And then, after someone has given, you uh, you talk about stewardship. Uh, as you know, the engagement of past donors and trustees, and you say stewardship is uh, not an overhead item, but an offensive weapon. So let's That's talk cool. about stewardship. What? What? Why? Why? I, I, again, basic lessons. But you know, I want people to get your perspective. Stewardship is a, why, why stewardship is so damn important. Um, that uh, you give a, a gift um, for a, um, let's say for an, an endowed share that uh, you maybe do that if you're in your 50s or 60s, that when they come back and tell you how that uh, chair is performing, it's an opportunity for them to engage your thinking you know, on the next level and the next level. That uh, one of the, I'm just going through a very difficult situation in a hospital where they didn't report 
how the gifts were doing, you know, for people they gave, and they were wondering why people were dropping off. The whole notion of it's a lifelong engagement. And uh, when you come in to tell somebody how their uh, uh, previous investment organization is doing, there's a lot of interest on that part of the person hearing how did their money do. But you're also there in the opportunity to talk about other kinds of things and opportunities and move the discussion forward. And it may have been that an annual fund gift around a class reunion. That may in due course lead you know, to a capital campaign, you'll gift, you know, somewhat further on down the road. And it may be a planned gift, even, you know, you know further down the road. And of course, the, the art of the question is, when you're managing these lifelong relationships, you got to be careful not to move too much close quickly, because if you, in fact, uh, uh, get the short-term gift, you may also be turning off the long-term relationship, which can be more important. That's that's why there's, yeah. there's such an art to this uh, this fundraising. Yeah, yeah, and and there's a whole variety of stewardship methods. I mean, you're you're focusing on you know reporting on impact, uh, but you know if that if the first few gifts are you know in the 150 to 500 dollar range, you know that's it's hard to place impact, put impact upon that. But how how would you steward those it's, you know, those three and low four figure gifts? How, how, what do you well, like it's, to say? it's actually I mean, your, your your point is that now one of the first things that when somebody graduates from college is we have all kinds of incentives to just get in the habit of giving fifty dollars or a hundred dollars, you know, for each of the first ten years. And you have a 10-year giving club that is given 10 years in a row. Mm. Well, 10 years in a row for uh, a, somebody who's going from 22 to 32 doesn't add up to a lot. But the habit of delivering, the habit of giving, the engagement and so forth, that's what's really laying the seeds for much deeper uh, support of some of them you know, further down the road. And that, just, makes, that makes me think of another stewardship method, you know, the, the recognition society. I think a lot of folks don't think about having a recognition society based on longevity of giving. So, you know, of course you're using the, you know, 10 years, someone graduates from college, if you can get them in a habit of giving for 10 years, there's a very good chance, unless you blow it, that, you know, they'll be giving for the next 40 and 50 years in, in increasing increments and in different ways. And uh, as, as you've talked about, but that, that, method of recognizing giving for longevity. Those folks yeah. who've been giving to you for 25, 30 years, and there's longstanding organizations that have donors that do go back that far. And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe out of 30 years, the person missed two years. Ah, so you give them a break or something, you know, but, but you have I mean, I, recognizing I, 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 the longevity, not just the dollar amount each year. I'm, as you're talking about it, three or four reports come right to my mind where there are little asterisks beside the people who've given for each of the last 10 years. And double asterisk for the last one. And you actually look at it. And that, of course, is, you know, one of the things that's important is that uh, development people went through a point that printing out uh, development reports and giving reports and so forth is very expensive. And that you really should do this on the web and on screen. The fact of the matter is, 
when I'm at my most philosophic, I'm flipping through a report and I'm seeing what my classmates or associates did. And if it's an organization, my children are involved. I may flip back down to another part of the thing. And it just turned, it turned out to be false economies. And a lot of the people that have undone the paper stuff and got online had had to back off the other way because uh, discussions and ruminations, which were important, were taking place. Yeah, you uh, you you have some uh, anecdotes about that in in the book, which you know we can, we can't go we can't dive into all the stories. So you just got to get the book. You just got to buy effective fundraising. So just it starts. But it starts from the very beginning. I think that the example yeah. I, is I entered Harvard College as a freshman. And my second day there, I'm sitting with 1,100 people in the room, and somebody's talking right and left, and those are the people that aren't there because you're there and you're feeling pretty good. And the next comment uh, he made uh, blew my mind. He said, and every last one of you was on financial aid. Uh, my father had not communicated to me, he talked a lot about the expense. And he said, you're here because of the philanthropy and generosity of the generations that came before. But at your 25th reunion, you will have an opportunity to repay that generosity. And the numbers went something like this. That thing just slipped across the room and 1,100 minds, a lot of it stopped there. And and the 20th reunion, there was a $200,000 gift. And at the 25th, it was an 8.5 million. And the 35th, it was a 25 million. And that, uh, but the habit, the, the, you lay the idea down very early. On the very first day. The first day. He's talking about right. the 25th. <laughs> He's already got you giving to the 25th reunion. That's campaign. right. Right, right. All right. Now, so I mean, that doesn't have to be a college. There's, there's a very good lesson there. My synesthesia is kicking in. I'm getting goosebumps. Think, they, to listen, talking about this. Um, yeah, there's a very good. You know, you get people in early, and you and you and you cultivate those relationships. You cultivate that that relationship long term from the from the outset. You know, so so for your organizations, you know, take the lesson. There's you may not you may not be a school. You don't have a first day of college, but you can be cultivating from the very early stages. Absolutely, a long term relationship. All right. Stewardship, critical. He Again, Warren calls it an offensive weapon. Um, let's talk about the, the head of the development committee. This is something that I'm sure listeners do have. Even if, you know, even if it's a small board, there's at least a development committee of, you know, two, maybe three folks. But you spend time on, uh, on the, the, you know, in the, in the parties to the, to the board uh, talking about the, the head of the development committee. And some skills that you like to see there. What what are you looking for in in that position? It's somebody who's got to be able to mobilize other trustees to come and join in the giving operation. The ability to reach out uh, to the rest of the board, make them understand this is part of their job. It's somebody who, whenever they're going out and talking about the organization, the organization is in their mind. Mm-hmm. To me, development uh, is, a, is a job that's uh, 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, and even more so for the development person. But uh, I just I remember a situation that uh, uh, I was heading up a capital campaign for a religious organization, came out in the Boston Common in early January. You know, the temperature was about two degrees. The wind was blowing. It was miserable. I had 300 yards to go. And I ran into uh, one of my former students uh, going on. He, he stopped and said, well, said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going off, you know, to uh, to join uh, uh, this, uh, uh, this, this fellow, me, this religious organization. He said, oh, he said, you know, I'm a member of that religion. Now, this is somebody, you know, who uh, has, his, his wealth was considerable. And I just kind of stopped and said, well, you know, tell me more. The temperature suddenly went up to about 60 degrees. The wind dropped down. He said, oh, I, said I was a senior warden of my uh, church down in New Jersey. Yeah, so I said, but, but uh, you're not there anymore. He said, yeah. I said, which church did you belong? He said, well, I'm now up with the one in Wellesley. And I said, that's terrific. And uh, we disappeared out. I got to the office and sat down to the heavy organization and said, listen, this is what it is all about. And that uh, my uh, uh, former student was in his office, you know, three weeks later for lunch. And over lunch, you know, why that the head of the organization uh, expressed an interest to actually see this person perform in a classroom. And so I never wanted to see me teach. But he went and watched this summer student of mine, you know, teach. And that led to another nice pro bono consulting assignment. And the result of the whole thing was that there was about a $500,000 gift that took place in such a tasteful way you never even knew what happened. But that's something you just do recognize the opportunity and you have to stop, you know, put the thing together. You got to be creative. And so the head of the development committee, I want them there. They need to breathe and live the organization, you know, 100% of their time. It means they've got to have a close working relationship with the chief development officer. They have to have a close relationship with the, you know, the, the CEO to make sure that they're always, always in line. Mm. Great, great wisdom. Yeah. And uh, you say you want the person to be persistent and fearless. And, you know, that all that that all is uh, epitomized by the story you just told. That's outstanding. Thank you. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. They'll help you find your voice and they'll get that voice heard in the right outlets. Like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. The Chronicle of Philanthropy, Fast Company, Market Watch, many others where they have the relationships to get you heard. So what does this mean? Get your voice, uh, find your voice, and then get it out there. Well, to finding the voice, they'll help you craft your message. I mean, you've got your key points, but you want to make them cogently, concise, co coherent. Look at that. Cogent, concise, coherent. Yeah, that's what you want to do. So that when you're talking to the journalists at these incredibly good outlets, you get quoted. That's what you want. You want the quotes. I mean, you know, saying that you said something and then they paraphrase it. You know, that's pretty good too. Look, it's your name. It's your organization, of course. But the quotes, that's the gold standard. Turn two will help you 
craft your messages. You know what the message are. They'll work with you to make it, what did I say? Cogent, right? Cogent, concise, coherent, so that you get the quotes in these excellent outlets. So they help you find your voice. They help you get that voice heard. Turn to communications. You know this. Your story is their mission. Turn-to.co. It's time for Tony's Take Two. I've got a free, timely webinar coming up for you. Planned giving in the pandemic era. It's graciously hosted by JMT Consulting. I'm grateful for that. They're gracious. I'm grateful. We're doing this on September 30th from 2 to 3 Eastern Time. I'm going to talk about what planned giving is, who your best prospects are, where to start your program, and how planned giving fits in our pandemic era. And of course, you got to have the all-important Q&A. That's where the focus goes on what you're thinking, what what is on your mind. I can only channel so much of you. I need you to fill in the rest. So that's the all-important Q&A, of course. Plenty of time for that also. So you have to make a reservation. It's free, but you got to reserve. You go to JMT, like Juliet Mike Tango from the old Air Force uh, days. Military folks will appreciate that. Also private pilots. JMTConsulting.com. Then events and then expert speaker series. That's the only category they have. I would have uh, put me under something like middling speaker series or lackluster speaker series. But uh, alas, they don't have those categories. They're, they're, of course, they probably, they're not going to create a category just for me. May as well just stick with their default category of expert speaker series and squeeze me in there. So that's um, that's where that's where you go. JMTConsulting.com, events, expert speaker series. It's all on September 30th, 2 to 3 Eastern. I hope you'll be with me for planned giving in the pandemic era. That is Tony's Take Two. We've got Buku, but loads more time for effective fundraising with Professor Warren McFarlane. The, another another part of the part of the, the board is the, the board chair, the, the chair and the CEO, the chair CEO relationship. That that's critical. I've I've seen very dysfunctional relationships where there was micromanagement and you know too much in the details. Uh, but I've also seen very healthy relationships where it's 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 supportive and collegial between the board chair and the CEO. Talk about that relationship, please. It's the most sensitive one, you know, in the, in the organization that, uh, the, uh, CEO is, uh, it, it's, it's first of all, it's peculiar to nonprofits. This is not known in the for-profit world and the for that the notion of an unpaid non-executive chair of the board, uh, uh working with a paid CEO. Uh, the first problem is people have coming from the private sector have trouble understanding how that system works. That, uh, it means that the two have to be in public very much in simpatica. I can remember that, uh, you know, one board that I, or chair that the, uh, CEO and I would fight furiously 
but all was 10 miles or more away from corporate headquarters. But when you're there with the board and with the staff, the hands were around each other's shoulders, the jokes were going back and forth, and you made sure you couldn't put a swim nail you know, in between the, 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 the two of us. I mean, it, the, that relationship is just an absolutely you know, critical kind of one. Now, what's also interesting, of course, is in some cases why the chair may be a uh, uh, very much of a development uh, uh, project. That there was a wonderful book that was just written by one of my former students, Ed Hagen, who is a uh, um, a uh, investment banker in in New York. He is chairman of the University of Rochester Board of Trustees, and his book describes you know how when he was asked to do that job, he said, "I just can't do it." You know, because I, I mean, I need to, Rochester is short of money. We need somebody to really raise the money. And the president just kept working on him. And finally, my friend, he types in the book, says, you know, what is the largest gift that's ever been given to Rochester? So it was back in 1926, George Eastman gave $26 million. And uh, he spent some more time and funny his family said, Rochester did so much for me. We're going to do a little bit more than that. Now, that's a chairman who, I mean, he gives with his treasure. He gives with his time and his blood. And he's a, he's a remarkable person. He was an orphan, uh, basically from orphanages from the time he was age seven to age 16. Uh, and won an ROTC scholarship out of the orphanage, you know, into, uh, uh, into Rochester. But that, that the whole notion behind that in terms of how a chairman, uh, can support is really, it's the, the chairman must be philanthropically oriented, must understand the development mission, must be able to, uh, work around the strengths and weaknesses, you know, of the CEO. Uh, fill me in a little uh, inside baseball and, and corporate boards. What what's the role? What is the role of a, a board chair on a corporate board? Um, the in the in the ideal world, the board chair is its board chair and CEO, and you have a president and chief operating officer board. So the board chair it. Uh, it's basically a, it, it, it's the CEO job. Now, from time to time with the mergers, uh, you may have somebody left over from a merger that you need to do something with. So you may make them sort of a non-executive chair of the board and give them a nice office about 10 miles away from corporate headquarters and the three years work while you work your way through your retirement, uh, um, you know, earn out and so forth. I see. Okay. So it's, it's, it often is though, it's the chairman, CEO, chair, chair and yeah. CEO. Okay. Uh, all right. So going back to nonprofits, what's your advice, Warren, on, on fixing the relationship? I mean, if I, I think CEOs would know if they have a dysfunctional relationship, whether it's micromanagement or maybe the board chair is too hands off, maybe he or she is not a, a strong leader of the board, not a consensus That's, leader. What what advice do you have for the CEOs to improve hope, the improve the relationship with with the board chair? Well, there there, there, there are several things. You know, the the first one is that uh, the length of, of of tenure of the board chair 
uh, is is often just two to three uh, years, and you, you want people to rotate, you know, through that. But the critical person, this again is the head of the governance committee. That the head of the governance committee is one of your wisest, uh, most senior trustees, and their job is to make sure that that relationship is working. And if it's not working, to yeah. find a way to sort of you'll know, move the thing uh, along. It's a, it's it's just it's a terribly difficult and awkward thing. And of course, it's complicated because you know people have tremendous egos that that it's all mixed up to that. Uh, they, the, the people who amass the wealth offer to do these jobs, they don't suffer from an underdeveloped self-concept. And so how you deal with their egos uh, is, is, is very tricky. Right. But so what, you know, what, what specifically, I mean, do we have a heart to heart conversation with them and say, look, you know, I think, you know, and I know, you know, this relationship is not ideal. Can we, can we talk about it or, you know, or is it just, I mean, I hate to leave folks just wait till the board chair's term is ended and then, you know, well, hope, to, be, hope to do better in, with their successor. There are two or three different ways. The first one is uh, right. uh, is, the, uh, is a question as whether it's the, the board chair problem or the CEO. I mean, this is, of course, you know, one of the, you know, the, the problems because, in fact, the paid CEO does report you know, to the board and to the yeah. board chair. So yeah. the, the power actually lies on the, on, on the other uh, you know, side. That uh, the question, there, that there are, all, there are all kinds of consultants who uh, can come and help, you know, mediate these things. But when you get to that level, it's already, you know, broken in a distasteful way. And the, the hardest problem is to try and avoid it getting in it at the beginning. And that has to do with how you pick the people, you know, in, in, in the roles. And that, uh, sometimes we, I was under a very difficult situation some years ago where, uh, the new board chair, uh, just almost immediate, uh, immediately started pushing things in that as he learned about the organization, uh, he came up with a strategy that just wasn't going to work. You know, for them. And we had to reach in and in the most tender way, you know, get him out. But then this is because uh, to get him out, knowing he could also be a supporter of the organization. And so it was just about as complicated as you can say to get the dirty deed done. But we love you. We need to. And we can help you. And yeah, boy, a lot of scrambling and a lot of stomach just turned around. I came to a happy ending on, on, on that part of it. But the, if the, the strategy had was, would not have worked and would have actually driven the organization to bankruptcy. You have to be very, very careful about circumspect about who you put in the board leadership, you know, if even, even vice chair, because the presumption yep. is that the vice chair is going to become the chair, assuming he or she is, you know, competent. So you have to be careful there and, and other board leadership positions too. It's, 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 it's very important. And you, you, you're right. I mean, you can end up with, uh, with something that really is, is detrimental to the organization and you're stuck, you know, for two or three years. Well, and you know, this is of course why it goes back to your very first question when you asked me, you know, why did I pick the governance committee to start? Mm-hmm. It's because that's the place 
where these issues get sorted out and need to be sought out in a strategic way. Yeah. Put, put time into thinking about these things and planning, planning, like succession planning. I, I, I presume you have a succession plan for, for the CEO. You know, there should be succession planning on the board as well. We, you know, we talked about as people leave the board, but succession. Oh, we know the slots that you're needing to recruit for. I always need to have uh, a couple of uh, potential board uh, chairs ahead of the finance committee, one or two heads of the development committee. And the job is very delicate because when you recruit somebody onto the board, you often have a view as to what role they're going to be best at. They may not, however, understand that. And they may be so excited to be on the board, they may want to sort of dive into some area where they have neither skill nor so it, it requires you know some discussion to sort of make it that make that work out. Yeah, I, I was invited to to be a board member once, and I, I I turned it down because I didn't think the organization had really thought through what benefit I could bring to the board, or you know why I'd be a good board member. Um, it was a smaller organization, and I I was supporting the work, but. I, I didn't. I, I just didn't feel that they had done their due diligence around me and you know why they wanted me. It was just, well, you're a supporter. You know, you're in, you're in the area, so you know, would you like to be a board member? And I mean, that sounds I, like very, that was very wise in your part. time. Const, time constraints went into it also, but I, I didn't. I didn't feel, and I, I continued supporting the organization, but I didn't feel they had. They were really taking board membership as seriously as they should, even as a small organization. And. Um, you yeah. never know till it does. Oh, I mean, you get mixed into all those things, and it can turn so bad. So yeah. you're just uh, much better to not get started than get into one that doesn't fit. Right, and then you know have the embarrassment of you know maybe having to leave before your term is over, and yeah. then there's bad feelings there. And yeah, I, I just yeah. I, I, so think through. You know, be be careful about. Be thoughtful. Be circumspect about who you invite on your board. That's why two two or three years can be a long time with with a difficult board member or a couple of board members. Two or three years can be a long time. Yeah. And a lot of them may be uh, six years. So, well, yeah, that's a that's a long that's an awful long term. Six years. I I mean, I I'm I'm all for, you know, maybe extending for a second term, uh, two or three years and then and then a second term. But I I remember this battle when I lost some years ago when I was a board chair and that uh, uh, this person had endowed a new athletic field for one of the universities in the area and we needed a new athletic field. And a little bit around the edges, often I said, uh, I said, I I need him on the board. The head of the conversation said, Warren, this isn't going to just fit. There's going to be precedent. But I'll make sure he sits beside me every meeting. I'll keep him under control. He said, Warren, you've only got two more years left. He'll be here afterwards. And uh, we didn't do it. Somebody else got the gift. But I'm pretty sure it was the right one because it, that they, it, there, there is a, a culture that you have to uh, deal with. And that, that if you have overtly disruptive people, that can, in fact, that's just, I suppose people who have good, clear ideas, well, reasons that are different than yours. That's a whole different topic. But uh, uh, right. loose cannons running around uh, can, can cause yeah. all kinds of difficulty. I think uh, it sounds like you were wise to uh, 
to take the advice of the person and not bring that member on. That's a very good point. You know, Warren, you're only going to be here for two more years. They've got years after that. And, you know, and really how well are you going to be able to constrain them? You know, if, if these, if the person becomes obstreperous in, in a, in a board meeting, are you going to be willing to, you know, put them back in their place publicly in front of the rest of the board? And maybe there's staff in the room at the same time. And that, that, that could have been ugly. So you were wise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't feel wise at the time, but um, <laughs> the way you describe it, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. It, okay. We've said enough about how bad it can be. Um, so hopefully you have a good board chair CEO relationship. It's it's supportive. It's collegial. Yeah. Like you said, you know, you, you couldn't drive a thin nail between the two of you in public, uh, but you have you have things out in private and, and, and there should be a lot of communication. I mean, I, I think a board chair and a CEO, they should be in touch I don't know, once a week or so, or it a takes times a, a month, right? It takes a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, the uh, ones that I was working on recently, it just turned out that uh, uh, it was taking 40, 30 to 40 hours a week yeah. of the right. chair. And that means uh, you got to make sure you have the time uh, you know, to put into that, too. Yeah. And the person that you're asking has the time. Yes. All right. So I've been I've been looking forward to talking to you about planned giving because uh, you uh, you have a chapter on planned giving and foundations, and I've been making a living at planned giving for a good number of years, twenty four years, uh, and you're a planned giving donor. It sounds like. Uh, so in your in your planned giving chapter, you spend. Most of your time, and it's just, a, you know, it's one chapter, and you make yeah. the point that plan giving could be a series of books. And indeed, I have a, There's yeah, a, like whole a industry there. Yes, I have a 400-page treatise on planned giving, you know, on my shelf that I, I hardly ever have to refer to. But when I do, it's comforting to know it's there. Um, so, you know, you, your chapter is an overview of, you talk about IRAs and trusts, different types of trusts and uh, charitable gift annuities. Um, um my focus in planned giving is now, so I, I, I am a startup planned giving consultant. I, I initiate the kickoff, launch the programs. Um, so my focus is mainly on wills because I think that's the place to start a planned giving program. Yep. Um, but again, you're doing an overview. You're not talking about starting a planned giving program. Your, your chapter gives an overview of planned giving, but I've still been anxious to talk to you about it, especially, you know, cause you're a planned giving donor too. What, what do you, what do you see as the role of, Planned giving. How, how, well, how critical to you is this? To me, it's um, that it, it it's as you pass by a certain point in your life, and I don't know whether it's sixty or sixty-five, um, that the actuarial tables begin to sort of uh, uh, look differently, and that uh, uh, somebody uh, is looking and wants to make a meaningful gift, and they may be worried about the um, you know the cash flow and. Uh, something like a you know a charitable remainder trust or charitable annuity is that the donor likes the fact they're able to give a big number, and they in fact know they're going to live you know for another forty years, and so it's a big deal that you and the other side you know the end is much closer than the donor, so it's a very happy kind of situation. Uh, and what it really does is that people who are beginning to worry about end-of-life expenses are able to use this set of vehicles, and there are all kinds 
of tax incentives. I mean, the one that I personally caught my attention was the IRA. I'd, I'd spent uh, 30 years of my life, you know, building that up at every step along the way for retirement income. And that uh, somebody had developed officer sit down and said, uh, you do understand, you know, what the tax implication is uh, when you die of the IRA. And by the time you looked at it, he said, this is actually free money because you're not taking very much away from your kids. And you're giving a lot more, you know, to the, the charity. And so uh, those discussions can be just enormously beneficial. And it's, uh, it, but you bring it up at sort of the right point in a person's uh, your life. At, 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 uh, at Harvard, we never heard about a charitable annuity at a reunion before the 45th reunion. And by the time you come to the 60th, that's all you're hearing about these vehicles. Um, So that that, that, that there's a time and a place for it. And it also, of course, comes back to our earlier discussion of the, uh, of the, uh, the annual fund giver, the trustee who becomes a trustee emeritus, contributes to a capital campaign, and then plan giving comes right on. And as you get into the habit of giving through the other things, you become more receptive, you know, more philanthropic about these later on in your life kinds of, of, of tools. And that uh, what you need there is you need people who are really specialists like yourself, because there are a thousand ways you can put the thing together. And I, I picked just about six or seven of whatever the most you know, common ones to, you know, to make the, the point. But those are the ones which, uh, you know, hospitals and museums and colleges and so forth, you you tend, you tend to use. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I see it as essential to the stewardship of yeah. donors. You know, you want that lifetime relationship it's it, it, yeah. it's stewardship over a long period, but in the in that period, there are there's cultivation and solicitation, you know, for the next gift. So as you're stewarding over a lifetime, you're cultivating and soliciting for different different phases, you know, the annual, the the major, the capital, the and and uh, ultimately the, the the planned gift. Um, so it's uh, so I'm interested in you know you as a as because I work with a lot of planned giving donors. Um, I've worked with thousands through the years, uh, but you know I don't get to have the conversation with them that I'm, you know, on the same level having with you. I mean, so I, I have to sort of suss things out a little bit. Uh, it sounds like for you, the, the the tax advantages of of the IRA were were appealing. Well, that, I, for, that tax that tax advantage was was moving for you. When, when I looked at, it, I said, this is this is a very inefficient way to distribute the IRA to my kids. Right. And I can, I, way they'll be taxed on it. Exactly. And so therefore, therefore, this is money that I can get much more leverage and by giving out to, to the outside. So that, and, I, and I've been really hammering at people with that for the last uh, you know, five or six uh, uh, years. Then you come back to the notions of uh, where you want to make a really you know, significant uh, you know, impact. And th- this is where charitable remainder trusts uh, are, can be really helpful, you know, so that uh, you want to sort of make a half million dollar or a million dollar gift. 
but you have to worry about uh, keeping the food on the table through your declining years. And that there, uh, that, uh, that you, you, you put the money aside for that trust and it takes care of the income through your life or your life and your spouse's life. Right. But there's a big number that goes to the, uh, uh, the museum or the university or whatnot at the end. And then, of course, it becomes particularly interesting as you know, Harvard uh, does it very nicely is that you can designate up to 49% of it to some other organization. And yeah, well, right. Well, Harvard, Harvard is an outlier there because they have the Harvard Management Corporation. Yes, right. But what that does is for your trust. Most, most nonprofits can't do that. And, you know, the trusteeship. Uh, ends up being with the uh, with uh, a Fidelity or a Schwab or you know some some financial institution. But the what it does is it uh, if in in that case it, it allows organizations that don't have very sophisticated plan giving and you really worry about the investment advisors they're using. Uh, yeah. You can it you can sort of put that underneath the same um, um, umbrella. Right. And yeah. The Fidelity exactly. will do the same thing. Your larger point that one remainder trust can help multiple charities. Yeah. And, and uh, I know you make the point in the book that Harvard Management Corporation allows that. Yeah. So as long as, I guess, I guess as long as 51% goes to Harvard, that's correct. 49% can go to other charities. Uh, if, but if it's an outside manager uh, and some, some financial institution manage, uh, acting as trustee, then uh, there's unlimited ways you can divide the. The but then the, you, lots and lots of charities from one single trust. As somebody who makes a living designing these things, of course, your greatest single friend of this is the U.S. Congress, because the laws change. Yeah. And just as soon as you have a finely tuned strategy in one place, you know, the laws you know, change and then you have to come back and you rethink about it. So it's it's. Oh. Uh, it's a, it's a continual activity. Once you get involved, you can't just do it right and it's done. Yeah, but this, the significant tax code changes only come like every 15, 20 years or so. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you'll, you'll go through a couple in a career. Yeah. Uh, but again, again, you know, my work is mostly at the, at the formation of planned giving level. I mean, I've, I've done $25 million lead trusts and I've done multiple remainder trusts and hundreds of gift annuities, maybe thousands, I don't know, hundreds at least. Um, but my work is mostly at the formation stage, getting folks, getting nonprofits set up with just how to do it. Yeah. Let's start asking with bequests. Let's just start asking for bequests. Yeah. Simple gifts by will. Let's start there. That's the foundation, uh, I believe, of, of any planned giving program is is just the simple gifts by will. Um, and then in years later, you know, right. you may graduate to the more sophisticated gifts. Depending on the size of your organization, you might not. You might just, you might just be content with doing bequests indefinitely, and you'll capture most of the planned gifts anyway, because that's they're, they're always the, the most common. Your comment is powerful. The will is 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 the first place. Yeah, and uh, then of course, uh, way way back when that I can uh, that um, remember somebody. Uh, one of one of my ancestors uh, uh, basically uh, was going to give a gift of uh, of a of a certain uh, you know percentage of her estate, mm-hmm. 
And the other Irish women said, no, I don't want to do it that way. You want to make sure that uh, your heir actually gets a specific money. And so instead of the percentage, uh, put in what she thought was a huge you know, number, which was actually one-tenth of what would have had it gone the other way. So you have to have I mean, all sorts of funny kinds of twisted thinking that you have to sort of unravel in yeah. that process. You uh, you flesh that story out in the book. You, you, you tell that one in, in a little more detail in the book. So folks got to get the book. Um, Warren, let, let's leave folks with uh, just... You know, you've got these 40 years of experience, multiple, multiple board memberships, board chairmanships. Uh, you're a donor in your own right through times, decades and decades. Leave folks with some some fundraising wisdom, please. I think that uh, philanthropy is fundamentally a very satisfying activity that basically you're helping to move social causes along, uh, along that, that I, and that's of course is the whole power of the nonprofit sector is that I, there's, there's almost a spiritual aspect, uh, uh, to it. I, I enjoyed my corporate boards. We've made big changes, things of that nature, new products, so forth, but there's something different. There's something different in the nonprofit. And when you're trying to sort of, you know, move society along in some ways that you think are, 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 are important. And, uh, that what you have to learn is that, uh, uh, you have to educate people on the opportunities, uh, that, uh, the book was originally written to basically the new trustee right after a lot of them are asked to be trustee, the first thing they say is, do you have to ask people for money? Because I'm not good at it. And the answer is yes, you are going to have to ask for it. And we can train you how to ask for it. And it starts by your basically making a major commitment because that gives you the passion and so forth to move the the, the cause forward. But uh, it's uh, the, it's, when the four organizations I'm involved with now, each one of them are ones that I actually believe in the, in the mission in a deep internalized you know, kind of, of way. And if I didn't, I'd have, I'd have gotten involved in other things. It doesn't mean you can't pick up new choices a lot of way. That's some of the smaller things I do. Uh, they're very interesting, uh, the kinds of ones that, uh, core values, but it's, it's an, it's an opportunity. You know, to, to move the world forward. And that's, 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 that, that, that's what, why people give their time and, and their treasure. Thank you so much, Warren. F. Warren McFarlane. He's a professor emeritus at Harvard Business School. The book is Effective Fundraising, The Trustees Role and Beyond, published by Wiley. Warren, thank you very much for sharing. It's great wisdom. Thank you. Thank Just you. Terrific. Thank you so much. My pleasure. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission, turn-2.co. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy, and this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great, 